0: Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with controversies in church history and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Title lecture is Humanae Vitae Catholics, Contraception, and the Church in Crisis, 1930 to 1970. Um, So I'm going to talk about things that happened that led to this, this. Uh, conflict over the the church's teaching on contraception. You don't know, by the way, humana vitae was the encyclical issued by Pope Paul VI in 1968, which reaffirmed the church's um, prohibition of uh, any acts of artificial contraception as immoral. And a couple of things about the lecture before I dive in here. What I'm going to show you is for the most part, the church is a global institution, but it's mostly going to focus on Western Europe and the United States. That's where the bulk of the resistance to vitae came from. That's what I know about anything else i know I say this because I think there're going to be some people I have friends who are going to other countries might be watching this uh I'm not leaving you out on purpose. I just it's different in different countries, and the bulk of this this controversy takes place in um uh Western Europe and the United States. So that'll be the focus here. so let me get into this real quick um so I want to start out with a question, right? And the question, I thought the best way to go through this is uh, to show you this image from a Pew Forum survey. Uh, Pew Forum on Religious Life is a organization in the United States. that does surveys of uh, religious opinions in the, among amongst Americans, and this is an American survey. But you can give an idea just how widespread this this is, um, extrapolating from this. And it surveyed people's in 2016. Pew Forum surveyed Christians in America about their views on certain things. You can see here is contraceptives, abortion, and homosexual behavior. And I've highlighted the, uh, for our purposes, the uh, um, relevant portions here. Among all Catholics, you can see right here, uh, 8% think that contraceptives, contraceptives are morally wrong, according to the survey. 41% think they're morally acceptable. 48% say it's not a moral issue at all. When you come down here, they also ask people if they attended uh, worship services once a week. So for those who attend weekly or more Catholics, that means go to mass once a week. The numbers change slightly. Thirteen uh, percent of mass going Catholics, weekly mass going Catholics, think, uh, think um, artificial contraceptives are wrong. Forty-five percent say it's morally acceptable, and then forty-two percent say it's not a moral issue. So the question is, we you know, the church still has always basically taught. We'll get into this that any sort of artificial frustration of conception is immoral. So the question is okay how did we get to this point from presumably we'll go into this that uh, used to be not this way. So how did this come about and that's what the lecture is going to be about here. So I want to begin with a graph as you'll see I'll end with a graph or a chart. I want to talk about some broad changes that happened in the 20 or so years prior to Humanae Vitae being issued because there were lots of things that um it's kind of complicated that led into people just sort of catholic belief collapsing in this this doctrine and in fact um there was a sociologist of religion back in the 1960s a man named peter berger who uh, came up with this theory uh they called plausibility structures he was trying to explain why certain religious beliefs die out why they certainly not only die out but why they come to seem unbelievable to the to the adherents of, of a particular religion and uh so what i'm kind of talking about here is why all of a sudden in the decades years leading up to humana vitae that increasing the church's teaching not seemed plausible to people to
1: catholics and the first thing i want to talk about is the world wars world war one and world war ii and now i'm starting 1945 here um,
0: i think it's very likely these two the, the the wars had a big impact on this for a couple of reasons Um, reasons you may not think about, but wars pretty much always lead to an uptick in, well, how can I put this? Premarital sex or sex outside of marriage. Why is this? This is because during wartime, you have a bunch of young men sent off to war who get exposed to, well, opportunities for non-marital sex they would not have in their own lives. If you know the uh, the song, the War 1-era song from America, uh, how you gonna keep them down on the farm when they've seen Paris, right? That, that's referring to how you are gonna keep them at home when they've they've had opportunities for uh, non-marital sex. Basically, is what that 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 song is alluding to. And we have hard evidence of this, by the way. That, for example, during World War I in France, for example, among the French population, rates of nearly disease, uh, rates of um, out of uh, out of wedlock births shot up during that war. We have anecdotal evidence uh Germain Grise, who was a, a theologian who defended Human Vitae later in the sixties, recalled being told by priests that during the war in Europe priests had sort of let um the you know let couples contracept because of the circumstances of the war. Things were hectic, and then um it came to be seen as acceptable uh, after the war because of that in certain areas, so there's definitely this sort of uh, thing going on, I think. In the United States is a definite, by the way, a definite, I think, connection between the two world wars and changes in ideas and attitudes about sex. Right after uh, the war was over in the United States in 1948, if you know what I'm talking about, Alfred Kinsey, who was a, a long story issued a report, an infamous report, um, surveying American attitudes or American at least self-reported attitudes and sexual practices. There are problems with the actual survey, it probably wasn't that accurate, but the fact that somebody was actually invested in that, to do that in 1948, suggested that there was some connection there, I think. And just the dominance of um, veterans in American life suggests this uh, after World War II. Uh, It's hard for us to remember, but we had a a president in the 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower, who was a World War II general, Uh, half the congressmen uh, in Congress uh, by the middle 1950s were former veterans. Uh, And in things like fashion and movies and stuff like this, Um, the culture was dictated by what you might think of as being sort of barrack room fantasies about women. The best example of this, by the way, being Hugh Hefner, who founds Playboy in 1953. If you don't know, Hugh Hefner uh, spent three years in the army during World War II, from 44 to 46. He didn't see combat. I don't even think he went overseas. He may have gone to Korea, I think. But he got exposed to Again, that's what Playboy basically is. is sort of a, a, a soldier's, a grunt soldier, barracks wet dream about women alike, and so this gets into the culture well before my point here. Well before the 1960s, it wasn't very prominent because there were taboos about talking about this stuff on, in public life in the 1950s. But my point is, this didn't begin with the baby boomers in the 1960s. In fact, almost all the people I'll talk about in this lecture who were involved in the controversy over, over the church's teaching they're born before World war II, uh, born before the baby boom even though the boomers, as I get to in a second, have something to do with this they're part of the their parents generations were part of this so that's the first thing. Second thing is demography demogra- demographic changes and the population control movement. Uh, there was a worldwide uh, baby boom following World War II which unleashed a disproportionately large cohort of teenagers upon the world. And as you know, teenagers like, well, they like sex.
1: Uh,
0: and when you have such a big cohort, again, especially in the United States, um, you know, demography is destiny. Demography is power. So, you know, advertisers, businesses, politicians, you know, TV executives begin catering to that demographic who's younger, again, more into things that young people are into like sex. Um, they also by the way do the baby boomers spend more years in educational institutions than their parents did and this is important because you're having students in the 1960s uh again in which there's a there is a huge swelling of enrollment numbers in uh, universities across the western world united states western europe so you have more kids being more exposed to ideas that are probably antithetical to the church's beliefs about sexuality but even more than this, uh, an important part of the story I'm going to tell you tonight is about this population control movement. Um, growing world population after World War II led to fears of scarcity. Um, and a as a very, very technocratic sort of population control movement, um, uh, which was spearheaded by international institutions like the United Nations, uh, NGOs, uh, philanthropic organizations, which I'll come to some of these in a moment. Um, as well as other, you know, think tanks and stuff like this. Well, as governments began to sponsor initiatives in um, developing countries, uh, promoting contraception and sterilization with the intention of trying to reduce their population. Uh, governments increasingly, and they have since then, um, tied aid to these countries uh, to population control. One example, uh, after reading a uh, study by a population control advocate in 1965, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president of the United States, uh, cut off aid to India, saying that, quote, I'm not going to piss away foreign aid in nations where they refuse to deal with their own population problems, unquote. Lyndon was a real sweetheart, by the way. And then finally, the year that uh, humanity was issued in 1968, uh, Paul Ehrlich, you know who that is, it's kind of an infamous name, um, a Stanford scholar who published a book called the population bomb uh, predicting that in a few years if drastic measures weren't taken millions of people would die across the globe and there'd be overpopulation all of that stuff none of those predictions came true by the way it's completely completely nonsense in a lot of regards but it's a very powerful
1: force among world leaders uh, in the in the money up to humana vitae other things that make a difference are technological developments and in fact, one thing that runs through, again, my own
0: looking at this in preparation for the lecture was just the belief, especially among Americans, in the, I don't know how to put this, the, the faith they have in technology. I guess we still do, Americans do. They, they think technology is like going to save us or something. Um, but you have innovations um, that change social life. Uh, one, one that's kind of not talked about, this is historians talk about this stuff, specialists is that um that affected housewives especially in america well the development of well um time-saving uh appliances vacuum cleaners stuff like this refrigerators things you take for granted now was a huge change and it was a change because before the 1950s your middle class you probably have a maid do all the cooking and cleaning and stuff if you have of a certain class Well, by the 1950s you didn't need that because it had been replaced uh, by you know automated technology right technology is great um but there's oddly enough method middle class uh housewives were doing more work more housework than ever before because now they had to do it all essentially uh so it's kind of one of the i say this because there's gonna be a a lot of a push among the laity in the 1960s for for the church to alter its teachings and allow for the use of artificial compensation comes from married women. Uh, and this is again, it puts a lot of pressure because women are also, if you don't know, by the end of the 1950s, increasingly entering the workforce in greater numbers. So this would be a weighing on people's minds. Television, of course, reshapes the landscape in the 1950s. Um, it can broadcast, you know, sexualized images to a larger audience, and again, one thing to keep in mind, today, across the globe, you have lots of options if you want to watch TV. You don't have to watch sexualized images if you want. In the 1950s in America, there were three TV channels. Uh, in Europe, most places, you had one state-run television station, so, um, and TV is, it becomes a powerful force in, in public life, but the most important thing, of course, some of you probably know this already, is that in 1960, the uh, the first oral contraceptive goes to market and it is effectively the, the first truly um reliable form of artificial contraception ever invented and this will change uh things out of all proportion this is the dividing line um that really things begin to heat up in terms of the controversy of the church's teaching because of this in, in, in 1960. and then finally as you get toward the early 1960s you're beginning to have the erosion of ta- public taboos of discussion
1: like about things like sexuality uh sex is a forbidden subject for a lot of people uh, up to the early 1960s and the fact that it begins to happen around about the same time human abt is um is um
0: promulgated is one of the reasons why the reaction is the way it is i think and uh, there was actually a it was an explosive thing by the way to go from never talking about sex in public to all of a sudden it's it everywhere and um, there was a poet, uh, Philip Larkin, a good poet, actually, who wrote a poem in 1967 uh, in which he, uh, uh, the first the first stanza of this poem says, I'm reading this uh, here, a quote, sexual intercourse began in 1963 between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. And if you don't know, and by the way, he's being tongue-in-cheek. When he says sexual intercourse began in 1963, he means... Again, it became something a reality you talked about in a way I had never been talked about before. And just to follow my point, by the way, he says the Chatterley ban, that, that line I read. The Chatterley ban refers to the banning of D. H. Lawrence's novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, in Britain. It had been banned in the nineteen fifties. The Supreme Court struck it down that ban in nineteen sixty three. This begins to happen in America, late nineteen fifties. You're beginning to have bans on um Pornography struck down the Supreme Court. Those taboos are beginning to erode at the same time. Um, humana Vito and the church's teaching is coming under, uh, under scrutiny. So all these things lead to the erosion of those plausibility structures that I just talked about there. And here's a couple of nice images to show you, because we'll get to this in a moment, about how contraception comes into uh, people's mentality. Um, filling contraception 1923 and 1960 on the left you have a an image this is the uh, birth control review uh, which was edited by margaret sanger the founder of planned parenthood in uh, 1923 and you can kind of see um and she's the founder of the birth control in you know, a second but you see the image there of how she's selling birth control slash contraception you have a woman standing there looking distraught and then behind her a ball a chain with a ball on the end of it says unwanted babies um on the right-hand side, you have uh, one of the first ads for the, quote-unquote, the pill, the first oral contraceptive, which is actually called Innovit. And um, you can see there's an ad. And I can't remember which magazine this was in. Um, and it's, uh, it's very interesting the way that they talk about this. in the, If you can't read all this, it's kind of interesting. The first comprehensive, truly feminine uh, regulator of cyclic function. Apparently, one of the uh, fears of women was that it would make them masculine if they took stuff like this. But... Look what it says down here, uh, for maximal efficiency and safety in regulating menstrual cyclic function, a steroid compound, da, da, da. There's an emphasis in these advertisements, if you read through this stuff, on the efficiency, on technocratic control in these ads. It's very interesting. But also note this image. You probably can't see it too well up here. You probably see a woman in chains. It's uh, actually a woman breaking out of her chains, if you can see it up close. And in fact, this is a reference. If you know your Greek mythology, here's the time to use it. This is actually a picture of Andromeda. And if you don't know, Andromeda in the Greek myth is actually chained to a rock and rescued by Perseus. Of course, in this image, she's she's rescuing herself by breaking out of her chains. My point of bringing these two pictures together is that contraceptions begin to be sold as personal liberation for women uh, in the early 20th century. And so that's bringing it to here and specifically with the church and the birth control movement. And one of the things about this is that the whole idea of a birth control movement would have been unthinkable prior to the modern era, about my, being about 1800 or so, um, partly because the problem before then was people died at such high rates. You didn't want to restrain births. You wanted to have more of them. But with the coming of industrialization, where you have all of a sudden uh, birth rates shoot up, and the advent of modern medicine, you begin to have almost immediately, starting in 1800 or so, the first movements to limit um, limit family sizes. Uh, in fact, even before 1800, the first widespread use of contraception we know of um, in Western history, anyway, uh, is in France in the latter part of the 18th century. Uh, in 18, I think it's 1798, 1799, 98, Thomas Malthus, uh, an English clergyman of the Church of England publishes an essay on uh, on population, which is very influential in a lot of areas, in which he basically advocates for the government to start helping people limit their family size. He's afraid, this is his idea, is that population tends to outstrip um, food supply. Uh, he doesn't advocate, by the way, artificial contraception. He's an English clergyman. But his followers pretty quickly begin to do so. In fact, in 1822, a uh, man named Francis Place, who was one of his one of his followers, became the first person I'm aware of in any Christian country in history to advocate artificial contraception as if it were a good thing. Um, this is one of the things, again, the background here, no Christian body, no Christian church ever had given approval to contraception before the 20th century. We'll get to that in a moment. And so it was still widely condemned, even though Malthus's ideas have a following. And by the latter part of the 19th century, you have uh, so-called Malthusian beings spring up first in Britain and elsewhere in in, um, in uh, Europe who are dedicated to um, um, reducing population. They promote artificial contraception. Uh, by the way, the, one of the reason, reasonings was that the primary cause of overpopulation, uh, overpopulation was the cause of poverty. So they wanted to eliminate poverty. It was put in humanitarian terms. However, uh, most governments didn't buy this, and in fact, uh, as soon as this became a became a, uh, w- uh, widely known, uh, people reacted against it. Uh, in the United States, um, the so-called Comstock laws were passed in the 1870s, whereby um, information about sex and contraceptives was prohibited uh, from being sent through the U.S. mail system. This was the senator, Anthony Comstock, who did this. At the same time, beginning in the 1880s, uh, the hierarchy, the uh, Catholic hierarchy in many Western countries, began insisting that confessors make inquiries about this, about uh, whether couples were using contraception if they had valid suspicions. Uh, and you had them issuing statements uh, um, in Belgium in the 1880s, Germany, uh, France, United States by 1920 have also all issued public statements condemning the use of contraception. At the same time, however, you're beginning to have especially the early, early 1900s, turn of the century, um, the um, the so-called science of eugenics gaining a following among a lot of people, actually. And they're going to be not just people in the churches, and there are actually a lot of them, not the Catholic church, but the Protestant ones in America, but also philanthropic organizations, the Carnegie Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, if you don't know who those names are, those are big uh, rubber barons during the late 19th century. Um, they'll become heavily invested in population control. Uh, and they'll be part of this as well. By the 1920s, um, the ideas of Sigmund Freud, which he published about sexuality uh, prior to World War One, had become um, accepted widely in elite circles, academics, literary types, so on and so forth. And throughout Europe and the United States in the interwar period, you're going to have um, movements to um, um, to promote birth control. In 1919. Um, a uh, scientist, so-called, founded uh, in Germany the uh, Institute for Sexual Research in Berlin, uh, which is uh, part of the so-called sex reform movement in the Weimar Republic of Germany, which besides promoting contraceptions also uh, pushed for the legalization of abortion, which their campaign didn't work but it came close. 1921, uh, Marie Stopes opened the first birth control clinic in Britain the same year, Margaret Sanger started the first part of the Birth Control League in, um, in the United States. And by the way, uh, Margaret Sanger was actually funded in part by the Rockefeller Foundation, she was given a grant uh, by the Rockefeller Foundation. In the 1930s, you begin to have, um, you have the publication by the uh, psychiatrist Wilhelm Reich of several books which uh, effectively push well, he actually, I say push, he actually invents the term sexual revolution. He publishes a book. It's actually originally called in German uh, "Sex and the Culture War," key to its title. But it gets published in the United States in 1945 as "The Sexual Revolution," where uh, and he's a he's literally a disciple of Freud. He knew Freud. Um, He linked um, personal neuroses to sexual repression, uh, and sexual repression to the capitalist state as well as the patriarchal family. So, if you're ever wondering where this idea comes from that sexual repression and patriarchy go together. It comes
1: from this interwar period and people like Wilhelm Reich. And this is actually a big change because um, prior to World War I,
0: population control, contraception, birth control, whatever you want to put it, had originally been sold. and Actually, it still is uh, in private. They don't say it in public as much anymore. Um, it was originally sold as a, limiting the, limiting, a way of limiting the population of poor people. There is, at least from what I've read about this stuff, there's a real class, there's there's class stuff going on here. This is mostly wealthy or upper middle class people wanting to reduce the population of poor people. Mar- Margaret Sanger, if you don't know, that was one of her key key principles, uh, was to limit the number of people who were, uh, quite frankly, undesirable. Uh, this is why, by the way, people like George Orwell, of all people, who was an atheist, was opposed to um contraception thought it was a a upper class um conspiracy against the working class but what happens in the 1920s and will come to play after world war ii especially is the idea of um contraceptives being liberating for for middle class women other words it goes from being oh let's control the poor people to let's help um uh, middle class people so there's a shift in the justification for it And this all comes to the head for the church, if you're wondering, or get to all this, because I'm focusing, by the way, so much on wider things, because the the movement to push the church into accepting this comes from outside, as it comes from inside the church. Uh, In 1930, something momentous happened. Uh, 1930, the Church of England, the official uh, Protestant church, state church of of Britain, uh, became the first Christian body in history to approve the use of artificial contraceptives for married couples uh it was pitched again as a sort of um it was pitched as a sort of you know it was an exception it wasn't gonna be a, you know it wasn't just for everybody within a couple of decades virtually every Protestant denomination, as far as i'm aware in the world had come to accept either in practice or even uh mostly in practice they didn't come out and say it but they'd effectively accepted it as normal um by the by the late 1950s so within 20 years 20 30 years this has all shifted radically in the protestant world i should mention by the way as far as i'm aware um the orthodox churches have never have never accepted this so they've more or less kept to the ancient teaching but the decision of the anglican church um worried rome and so in 1930 uh, uh 1930 uh pope pius 11th issued casti canubi a uh, papal encyclical on marriage is what uh, that, that word those words mean chaste marriage <clears throat> which reaffirmed the traditional christian teaching on marriage that was primarily for procreation and family um and um he basically reaffirmed the um the uh, the church's teaching that i'm gonna read um quotation here in a minute uh quote any use whatsoever of matrimony exercised in such a way that the act is deliberately frustrated uh, in its natural power to generate life, is an offense against the law of God and of nature, and those who indulge in such are branded with the guilt of a grave sin. Unquote. And so, from that time all forward until the 1960s, the Church began to make greater efforts to try to respond to um, all these movements to get the accept, uh, make uh, contraceptives ac- acceptable to people, and. Um, particularly in the United States, they actually had, they had some success with this. This is what I know best, so I'll talk about it here. Um, the historian Leslie Tentler um, discovered syllabi in the uh, um, the uh, archives of the Archdiocese of Detroit, uh, and syllabi of sermon topics, where priests were uh, supposed to preach on all these topics at least once in a year, and they were expected to, and did preach on uh, at least once a year on contraception. And in fact, many priests did, but what a lot of priests did actually was actually get religious orders to do this uh, during parish missions. You know, parish missions are a thing, but you have people come in and usually religious orders come to give a, give talks on stuff. Uh, and in fact, according to um, Janet Smith, who's a scholar and a uh, defender of Humana Vitae, they actually had a day, a specific day, most of these parish missions did, Set aside to talk about sex. It was Wednesday. It was called Sex Day. Well, I thought it was kind of, <laughs> was kind of funny, but um, it was something people talked about. Uh, and so, and this bore some fruit by the 1950s uh, in the United States. One, according to one survey, in 1955, a survey of American uh, Catholic wives between the ages of 18 and 30 found that 70 percent had conformed to the church teaching and never thought about never never thought about using contraceptions. Um, This, by the way, dropped 62% by 1960, but still, you have in a Protestant country surrounded by people who are using contraception, you had the church basically holding the line, partly because in the United States, I don't know about other countries, you're having a sense this is a Catholic doctrine now. Again, this used to be something all denominations embraced. There's a sort of rallying around the flag effect to a certain degree in the 50s. Uh, but moreover, you have theologians trying to respond to criticisms of the church's teaching. You have them beginning to present the te- church's teaching in more personalist terms, putting emphasis on mutual love. In fact, actually, Pius did, the Eleventh does this in *Constantinum*. I'll come back to this in a moment. Um, and in fact, in 1960, that's when Carol Boitiva, the future John Paul II, first publishes his book *Love and Responsibility*. So you have people trying to trying to respond to people's uh, concerns. In the nineteen fifties um again uh, pius the 11th, uh, pius, excuse me, Pius the 12th, Pope pius XII, also um reiterates the church's teaching while still uh while uh, proving the use of the sterile period for couples with quote unquote serious economic medical or social reasons um and so you have and this is a i'll talk some more. this is a development because the church I haven't done this until Costi Canubi but um yeah, this is the rhythm method, of course. This is where you try to use the, we'll get to this in a moment. This is the precursor to NFP, if you know what that is. Um, and there seemed to be at least um, officially a big um, consensus as late as 1962. Uh, as late as that period, you have uh, an article in the in, a, in the Jesuit uh, journal uh, Theological Studies, which proclaimed that moral theologians were unanimous, that steroid-based contraceptives, that's what the pill was, Uh, were against natural law. So up to the early 1960s, it seemed like things were holding steady. However, there was already sort of change in the air, in the offing. Um, In fact, Pius XII, he gave a couple of talks about this in the 1950s. He was reacting to changes in moral theology uh, in the 1950s. By the early 50s, you already had some theologians trying to assert that a newer, more improved uh, understanding of human nature and his control especially over his biological nature based on modern experiences, et cetera, et cetera, uh, required a revision in the church's teaching on natural law. Uh, i usually get complaints like, I don't have time to go into this, but complaints that the church's teaching was too legalistic. It emphasized negative prohibitions too much. It wasn't sensitive to people's experiences. Um, there was also, and this will be prominent in this reaction to humanity questions began to arise as to whether the church's teachings could change on this because, again, up to the, up until uh, 1960 until 1930, nobody had thought it could change at all. Um, and in fact, by the early 60s, you begin to have Catholic scholars basically um, writing books proclaiming that it can change. Uh, 1964, the intellectual historian Louis Dupre wrote a book, Contraception and Catholics, uh, arguing that it could. Uh, but more important than that was the book published by John Noonan Jr., 1965, Contraception, A History of Theologians. Uh, I, I, I shared a, a photo on my uh, Facebook page of the other day, but John, John Noonan's, um, book was really important. Um, John Noonan, by the way, since passed away, was a federal judge, a very prominent legal scholar. And, um, he argued that teaching on, church's teaching on contraception was reformable. Now, even and I, I and I should uh, I want to apologize, to everybody. I don't have I didn't get a chance to read the book. I was going to, but the, because of the lockdown, I couldn't get access to books anymore. But I I got enough of a sense of it from reading other things around it. Uh, he acknowledges in his introduction does John Noonan uh, that the church had never taught that artificial contraception was uh, morally uh, morally acceptable. So and in fact pretty much always had. Like any anytime the church had addressed it, it was pretty much always, pretty much any act of, of um frustrating natural conception was wrong. I don't I, I don't know of any, I do not know of any um, any Catholic theologian, saint, doctor of the church ever taught otherwise. His argument went like this. He claimed that uh even though the church had consistently consistently said this was wrong he claimed that the just specific justifications for the prohibition had changed over time i confess i don't know what he's talking about it always seemed the same to me but um but more importantly this is the other big big argument he makes that people are really convinced by he may, he says that he um he says that in other areas other long-held teachings of the church had changed and he gives three examples and i don't have time to go into these But i'm, I'm well i'll just go through this here uh, Those on slavery, the church had once accepted it, starts to condemn it in the 19th century, so goes his argument. Usury, church had condemned charging interest uh, on loans uh, for poor people, but came to accept it in the modern era. And the third one, this actually goes back to the Second Vatican Council on religious freedom. The idea that it it had condemned it before, now it accepted it. Uh, I don't have time to go into it on all those. I don't buy any of those arguments, by the way. But you can make good arguments for them, even though I don't, I don't find them convincing. Uh, I think they're mostly superficial, but you can do it. It convinced a lot of people that yes, this thing was not reformable. This thing was reformable. Plus, by the early 1960s, Catholic women were already starting to use the pill. And um, Catholic laywomen increasingly from the early 1960s onward, wrote into Catholic magazines and Catholic newspapers um, and uh, calling for this to be approved. Uh, a lot of them complained about um, uh, the frustration they had with the rhythm method, which didn't seem to actually regulate births. They talked about um, how um, trying to be abstinent caused friction in their marriages because their husbands wanted to have sex. Uh, according to one, this is uh, one laywoman, Carolyn Scheibelhut, 1964 wrote a letter to an editor in which she, which she wrote, quote, to me and many Catholics, rhythm is a manifestation of an attitude of many clergymen looking down from their pedestals, offering us glib platitudes in the letter of the law without seeing our real problems, unquote. There was a sense, that growing sense, that the church didn't understand people's experiences. And therefore, this was why they had to sort of do this more important, I think, than this, at an institutional level, there were, there was a serious campaign by um, birth control advocates to woo Catholic leaders, um, mostly through things like philanthropic grants and money for education. Institutions like the uh, Population Council, which was founded in 1951 by John D. Rockefeller. The Rockefeller Foundation, of course, provided money for this stuff. By 1962, uh, Planned Parenthood made, began to make inroads into Catholic churches. They sent representatives, for example, to the Na- National Catholic Family Life Convention in St. Louis that year in 62, uh, and made contact with family life directors and parishes. They'd already sent representatives to Europe, to Catholic universities like Milan in Belgium to try to sway them, people like this. 1960, also um, next year, 1963, um dr john rock was a gynecologist from harvard and also a catholic uh had a book published by planned parenthood called quote the time has come a catholic doctor's proposals to end the battle over birth control and he made big hay out of the fact that he was a practicing catholic and um basically basically calling for an end to the church's prohibition he actually testified before the u.s senate the next year next year in 1965 i should say um, that he was completely confident that the church would eventually change its teaching on birth control. Uh, a survey of American Catholics, in fact, in 1966, um, found that 61% uh, expected the church to alter its teaching on contraception. And then finally, probably the, maybe the most important uh, driver of this, oh, one of the more important ones, uh, I mentioned the Rockefeller Foundation, John D. Rockefeller III. Um, got um, permission of Theodore Hesburgh, who was the president of Notre Dame University, father of Theodore Hesburgh. Um, And uh, they organized a series of private meetings from 63 to 67 sponsored by Rockefeller and the Ford Foundation. By the way, the Ford Foundation also heavily invested in things like population control. That's Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motors. And um, these private meetings with Catholic leaders Along with leaders from Planned Parenthood, Population Council, Ford Rockefeller Foundations, um, they met uh with the um, with the purpose of convincing Catholic leaders to change the church's teaching on birth control. Um, according to uh, Donald Critchlow, who's a historian with a book about this, um, the um, the um, Rockefeller and other people saw this as an opportunity to quote, help change opinion within the hierarchy, unquote. Uh, and according to George Schuster, who was the, um, or at least his biographer, who was the personal assistant to Theodore Hesburgh, the uh, the aim of all these conferences was, quote, to uh, create an oppositional voice within the Catholic Church on the issue of family planning, unquote. Uh, according to Donald Critchlow, uh, Father Hesbrough even arranged for a meeting between Pope Paul VI and John D. Rockefeller uh, in 1965. According to one source that I read in this, um, <laughs> uh, At that meeting, um, John Rockefeller actually offered to ghostwrite an uh, an encyclical, reversing the church's teaching for Paul VI. Apparently, he was there to pressure Paul VI into changing the teaching, uh, if I gather from what I gathered from this. And Then finally, 1967, um, oh, 65, excuse me, uh, 37 scholars who attended one of those conferences at Notre Dame signed a confidential statement, uh, sending it to to the Vatican, uh, basically lobbying for a change, asking for a change in the church's view of contraception. By the way, for all of his efforts, the- Theodore Hesborough was actually uh, appointed to the board of directors of the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, so there is a definite use of money, in other words, to pry the church's leaders to try to change
1: uh, church teaching this way. So this is all within a few years, uh, right up to the point where uh, Feminina Vitae gets issued. But for a couple of moments, I want to talk about Costi Canubi.
0: You can kind of see here. You have this. uh, I don't actually know what year this is from, but you can see this is from. I believe it says Saint Catherine's Novitiate, Dominican Sisters, Kenosha, Wisconsin. uh, American translation of uh, on uh, of uh, Costi Canubi. If you read down there too, it says with discussion club outline. So again, there were efforts to sort of promote the church's teaching uh, back then. What did it teach? I want to go into this real quickly because Costa Canubi' is important. Uh, it's mostly about marriage. It's actually not a whole. It's not the whole thing. It's not about con, uh, contraception. Um, but it says several things that are interesting. One is it affirms. It affirms the traditional teaching that all acts. Again, there's some mitigating circumstances to this, but all acts frustrating conception are sinful. But and this is something he actually says. It surprised me when reading it. Um, it is not a sin. If for a grave reason if one has tried to dissuade one's spouse, he actually says, "You read that, read which you should." Um, he says he, he realizes that in these is, in these issues that sometimes one is more uh, one one part of the couple is more sinned against than sinning. If you try to get your spouse to follow the teaching and he refuses, and in other words.
1: You, you, there's
0: the lack of culpability there. In other words, it's not again, there's some nuance this is my point. A lot of times you have people criticize the church for being legalistic. They understood people have problems. Um even back even back in the Stone Ages in 1930. Um he also approved uh, use of the infer or infertile period, uh rhythm method, didn't use that term, for serious purposes for the first time. This was the first time in church the church's history he had ever said anything but abstinence was abstinence was the only way until 1930 uh while reaffirming uh children of the primary end of marriage he also mentioned mutual love as a secondary purpose of of marital lovemaking obviously um and so it is uh, uh you know again it tried to affirm it did
1: try to affirm the church's teachings while trying to take into account people's experiences so it's not true that it didn't so, how do we get to humana vitae and the big blow up? Okay, so uh,
0: 1968, Pius XII dies, and uh, Pope John XXIII is elected in his stead as Pope. If you know who he is, he's the one who, of course, calls Vatican II, which begins in 1962. By the time you get to the early 1960s, there's a lot of rumblings about the church's teaching. John XXIII, in 1963, before he died, dies, dies that year. Appoints a commission for the study of the problems of family, population, and birth rate. Now, I mention this because it to this day, people when you read histories of this will say, well, he did it so the church could examine its teaching, church could do this. Uh, Janet Smith, I mentioned her before, did a serious study of Humana vitae about 30 years ago. And she claimed that she could never find anywhere, any published document, any published statement as to what exactly the purpose of this commission was. Um no one really knows. <laughs> People assume, by the way, they were examining it to see if they could change it. That's why I'm mentioning that. Um, we don't know if that's the case. In fact, um, the United Nations, the reason they may have created this commission was that the same year 1963, the United Nations had invited the Holy See to participate in an international conference on population uh, to be held in India. And this may have been a response to this. This, by the way, like world population and its problems was a big concern of John XXIII's successor, Pope Paul VI. He actually wrote an encyclical on the problems of modern society in 1967 called Populbotum Progressio, where he talked briefly about uh, population problems. My point about this, by the way, in mentioning this commission, if you don't know anything about how the Vatican works, most of their commissions are, they're private. They're kind of awfulness to the public. Uh, the Vatican, and it has every right, by the way, to have um, some privacy for its deliberations. Um, this was a problem, and I say this because by not telling people what it was about, it allowed people to sort of speak in the church's name and say, hey, look, the commission studying the church's teaching. They're going to change it. This really was, I think, a mistake by the papacy is my point, even though I have no idea why they did that. Uh, in fact, to this day, I think the church has um, – at a local level, definitely at a papal level, a problem with trying to be transparent. I get that they, they need to have some privacy, but um they still have not learned that if you, if you don't let, in this day and age, you can't just let people say whatever they want, because they're gonna say whatever they want. You can't control that. What you can do is get your own, get your own story out there, and it didn't even bother to try to do this. This, I think, was a big mistake. And in fact, most of the documentation, by the way, that was, uh, produced by this um, this um, this commission has never been released. So keep all that stuff in mind. Whatever its rationale, um, as it came to uh, start discuss things in 1963, the majority of people on this commission started to focus on contraception and began to debate, as, debate it as if that were the purpose that they were there for. And I should mention, by the way, the makeup of this commission was very historic. Um, the Pope appointed... Um, uh, a large number of laymen to this commission uh gynecologists psychiatrists um, doctors um, family life uh directors from parishes there were two married couples on this committee and um they were very influential so i'll get to in a moment um I, 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 by the way reason why I said that's historic uh, i don't mean to suggest everything was this way, but the pre Vatican II church could be very it could be very um what's what I'm looking for? They didn't necessarily take layman's concern seriously. Uh, and the fact they pointed that many laymen to this commission, again, it kind of singled people, hey, they're taking our concern seriously for the first time. Again, my point, is I think it raised expectations about what the commission was there for. And in fact, as they began to debate, um, and in fact, they, they changed, by the way, I wanted to say d- debating, okay, what about the church teaching on, teaching on marriage to debating, okay, it's teaching on um Contraception. To very quickly go into, is it reformable? And in fact, uh, the Pope uh, enlarged the membership of the co- uh, commission several times, apparently with a view to sort of putting a stop to all this. He actually added several bishops and cardinals to the to the uh, com- commission. The commission uh, did work for three years, and issued its final um, <clears throat> issued its final um, um, findings to the Pope in 1966. I say finally it wasn't actually a, a document that had consensus it was just the final findings that they um, provided to the the pope they did vote at the end of the commission on whether or not the church should change its teaching and of the 69 members of the commission 64 uh voted in favor of the church allowing artificial contraception including 15 of 19 theologians uh, and uh, these numbers don't add up, anyway, whatever, 15 um, to 19 theologians, and more importantly, nine of the 15 uh, bishops and cardinals voted in favor of this. Um, nine were in favor of changing it, three were against, and three abstained. Um, uh, there was one other person who couldn't come to the, uh, to the meeting who would have voted against it, that's Carol Votibra. Um the communist government of Poland wouldn't give him a visa to go, but... Um, the majority of the people, last
1: majority on the commission voted, that yes, it should change. And one of the things to note about this, by the way, I mentioned the makeup of the commission. Um, later after it was over, um, those who voted for change among
0: the clergy, uh, such as Cardinal Suenens of Belgium, who's a progressive Cardinal from Belgium, uh, they claimed that the testimony of medical experts, uh, experts and laymen, especially married women, was decisive for them. In changing their minds about the ban. Uh, again, you have to remember, a lot of these cardinals and bishops probably had never, they'd never talked to women about this stuff in their lives. Uh, they never heard what the problems were, right? Strained relations with husbands, depression, stuff like this, problems from multiple pregnancies, things like that. Conversely, one of the lay members of the commission, John D. Cavanaugh, a psychiatrist, uh, later told Germaine Griset, a theologian. That most of the lay people had come to Rome uh, on the commission uh, totally opposed to contraception, but they changed their minds once they heard theologians and clergy saying it was possible. And again, I can't emphasize this to you enough. I don't think most lay people would have gotten to their heads that the church could change its teachings if there hadn't been clergy telling them it could. Seems to me pretty pretty clear. Uh and influential, by the way, theologians uh changed their minds. Uh Joseph Fuchs was probably the most uh important one here. He was a Jesuit theologian who had been totally opposed to contraception before he came to Rome. All of a sudden he changed his mind during the commission. This had a dramatic effect uh, because virtually everybody in the Jesuit order followed him. <laughs> Not everybody, but a lot of people did. He was that influential uh in changing people's minds. And uh and so um they issued the findings to Paul VI in 1966 but and this is where you know there's things going on behind the scenes um the uh documents they gave him cited changes in church teaching in other areas as a uh, as a precedent for doing this particularly on things like usury and uh, freedom of conscience um and um uh, we went they i'll go some other things here but Big thing they did is that uh, a few of these members, uh, leaked copies of some of these documents that were supposed to be, they're supposed to, they're supposed to be off limits to the public. They leaked them to the press, uh, to the National Catholic Reporter right here in Kansas City, um, uh, to the tablet in England, a couple other places in 1967, which caused a stir because it seemed to me, oh look, the church is going to be changing its teachings. And I'm going to go over this in a second. Because it makes several, was well, one of the documents that uh, is involved in this uh, oppo dump, which is basically what it is, uh, was a document called Schema for a Responsible Parenthood. This is what everybody calls the majority report. This is why I, again, it actually technically wasn't. Uh, that that document, the Schema for a Responsible Parenthood, was written by four of the theologians who were in favor of the change. But they got it depicted as that in the press. And by the way, they leaked the documents in order to pressure Paul VI into and the, and the changing the teaching um it backfired it was we'll see but um that's what they did it um but they made basically six arguments in this document um of why the church should, could and should change its teaching the i'll go through these one by one here one is that modern in, in modern life uh modern circumstances rendered um rendered um absolute moral prohibitions impossible uh, and therefore complete abstinence in marriage was impossible. Therefore, it was too much to ask couples to abstain from sex, basically. Um, secondly, past teaching on contraception was obsolete now because of new scientific knowledge. Um, three, uh, not every marital act needs to be open to life because the morality of sexual act doesn't depend on following nature. It
1: depends on mutual love. Uh, before nature basically. Four um, um,
0: acts are not wrong because they stifle nature but because um, um, uh, yeah um, not every um, yeah I guess I put this in a bit of different terms here not every act of uh, contraception is immoral because man's nature is to control nature I'll come back to this dimension and show you the actual words they use, but basically saying that uh, mankind has control of nature, and therefore they don't have to follow the biological processes as if it was some
1: sort of law laid down by
0: God. Fifth, uh, the use of contraceptives should be up to the couples with rightly formed consciences, and there are no uh, rules that apply in all cases. And then finally, number six, uh, but this changes in continuity with the church's tradition on contraception which was probably the most um, presumptuous thing they said in that report. (laughs) Um, Now, when this thing was released, um, one of the prelate's uh, cardinals who um, voted against the change, uh, Cardinal Taviani, asked an American Jesuit named John Ford to stay in Rome and write a response to the commission's report. Eventually, Ottaviani got a meeting with Pope Paul VI and presented it to him, and later on, uh, Father Ford was given uh, a, uh, an audience with uh, Pope Paul VI to make his case as to why the church should, right? why he should reject the commission's report. Uh, according to Father Ford, he told a story that at one point in one of these talks, he asked him, uh, I'm quoting here, are you ready to say that Casti Canui can be changed? Paul came alive and spoke with vehemence. I'm quoting his words here.
1: No, he said. He reacted exactly as though I was calling him a traitor to his Catholic belief, unquote. Um, Long
0: story short, it was basically the efforts of Cardinal Ottaviani, Father Ford, and a few other people that convinced Paul VI to resist all this. Um, And in fact, uh, the document, of course, that will become Humaniditae will uh will reaffirm the church's teaching and um uh and so um i'm calling them minority because that's what they get called in the press but uh it's a handful of people who basically sort of bullied up paul VI to do this i say this because by this point paul VI knew there would be a huge reaction if he if he reaffirmed the church's teaching he knew there was gonna be a blowback in other words and i don't have a lot to i don't have time to talk about paul VI's character um he was not the strongest of people let's put it that way um and so it was probably uh probably providential that he had people there to sort of encourage him to uh to do this at the time otherwise it probably might not want to happen um and so he issues humanity in 1968 and i'll go through this briefly i'm going to show you some actual i'm going to go through some some important quotations here just to show you what i mean by this but um the first section of Humanae Vitae opens by acknowledging that there are problems. Um, people have problems, uh, and but asserting the magisterium's responsibility to address it. He also plays, by the way, early on, if you haven't read Humanae Vitae, you should. Um, he says that the special commission uh was not definitive because it wasn't unanimous and went against church teaching, basically. The second part of the um uh and the second thing about it is that it as we'll see in a moment, it reaffirms the church's teaching that natural law and God's design for marriage uh does not allow the frustration of
1: um of, of the process of life, basically. Um the final uh, it also ends by the way, it talks about uh toward
0: the end of this uh, second section, uh about what would happen if contraception is, uh becomes widely used and widely available. Uh, the final section of the of Humana Vitae is basically a plea to authorities, both in and outside the church, to help uh, encourage alternatives to uh, to uh,
1: contraceptives, uh, including education, things like self-control and chastity, which in the end didn't go down very well at all. Okay, just a couple of things. Um, so I throw you
0: a picture. I tried to share this on Facebook the other day and didn't come through, but... Uh, father John Ford passed away in 1989. If um and by the way, to give you an idea of what's coming after this, um he uh when he came back to America, he was a teacher for many years at Western Weston College in Massachusetts. He also taught in Rome during the nineteen fifties, but uh he got a sabbatical from um from Weston to go to Rome beyond that commission. When he came back in nineteen sixty seven, um some of his colleagues refused to speak to him. Uh, students stopped taking his classes uh he was so uh distraught by this he eventually resigned a couple of years later from teaching so he suffered for his uh, for his uh for his efforts to uh to affirm church teaching but I'm going to come back to the majority report the so-called I'm using that's what people call it but that majority report says several things just to give you an idea what's what the ideas that are, are clashing here in this at a high level because you're going to have I, I will get this in a moment. I, I think there's a big distinction to be made between lay people who rejected the church's teaching, rejected humanity vitae, and people in the hierarchy and people outside the church in in elite circles. Big distinctions, but we're going to the a majority report here. Just go through a few snippets from that uh, from that document. <clears throat> this first uh, this first um, passage I've highlighted says, "quote." It is proper to man, created to the image of God, to use what is given in physical nature in a way that he may develop it to its full significance with a view to the good of the whole person. So we're talking about sexual acts, okay? It's not about procreation. It's about, or about following nature. It's about the good of the whole person. i kind of vague on what that means in this document. It does not then depend upon the direct fecundity of each and every particular act. But they're saying there that the church was wrong before, and that not every act of contraception is wrong. Last sentence. Moreover, the morality of every marital act depends upon the requirements of mutual love in all its aspects. Again, there's this emphasis on love as opposed to natural law, right? Next section from the third section. Uh, maybe even more stunning than that one um in this passage they're talking about the distinction between acts which are contraceptive and acts which are not acts which are morally illicit those who are illicit so when it says uh, in brackets those are my words i put in there to make this intelligible but it says the true opposition that is between acts that are contraceptive and those which are not is not to be sought between some material conformity to the physiological processes of nature and some artificial intervention let me what they're about there is like what they're basically saying is the distinction between nature and what's natural or artificial is is not it's not applicable in the case of consciousness or perception. Why? And here's the quote quote here: "For it is natural to man to use his skill in order to put human under human control what is given by physical nature." And I want to I'm lingering on this because what they're basically
1: saying is that. Mankind or humanity is in control of nature, not God, human beings. This is why it goes on to say that opposition between what's morally right and wrong is
0: uh, is between one way of acting opposed to a prudent and general fruitfulness and another which has a concern for education and all the essential human and Christian values, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and don't tell, don't ask me what a prudent and general fruitfulness is. They, they're really vague on this. They never specify. The main work being done here is that whether something's good or not should be under the control, not of natural law, not of God's design, but of human, human power, basically. And finally, this leads to the last, one of the last conclusions in the majority report, the schema for a, a responsible parenthood. In other questions of conjugal life, there are various objective criteria which are concretely applied by the couple themselves, by couples themselves, acting with a rightly formed conscience. These objective criteria are the couples, meaning they're the ones who come up with the criteria. It is impossible to determine exhaustively by a general judgment and ahead of time for each individual case what these objective criteria will demand in the situation of a couple. In other words, basically the couples themselves get to decide what's right or wrong
1: in terms of something being illicit, in terms of contraceptive or not contraceptive. Uh, Basically it's all up to the couple, in other words. Which, by
0: the way, that was exactly what pretty much every Protestant denomination had come to the conclusion of a decade before this. I'm putting side by side with the majority report to show you what Humani Vitae said and why. And you can read it for yourself. This is this is the big takeaway, two things. Um, this is from uh, section 13. Uh, to experience the gift of married love while respecting the laws of conception is to acknowledge that one is not the master of the sources of life, but rather the minister of design established by the creator. Just as man does not have unlimited dominion over his body in general, so also... And with more particular reason, he has no such dominion over specifically sexual faculties. For these are concerned by their very nature with the generation of life of which God is the source. In both, I I know in Costi Canui, but I think also in Humanae Vitae, they both appeal to Genesis. Um, The very first command given by God in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. And so, again, this is a clear rebuttal to me in terms of what you just read in the schema, uh, in the so-called majority report. No, human
1: beings aren't master of nature. God is. That's why they have to follow their laws. Um, Again, each and
0: every marital act must of necessity retain its intrinsic relationship to the procreation of human life. Any action which is either before, at the moment of, or after sexual intercourse is specifically intended prevent is specifically intended to prevent uh, procreation, is deliberately
1: contraceptive, and so intrinsically wrong. Right, um, and so that's the rebuttal, basically. So, what's the fallout from all this? You can kind of see. I'll show you. I try to show you
0: a few things here. This is a uh, from the front page of New York Times. Made the front page uh, when uh, he published. He published it in uh july twenty fifth nineteen sixty eight my vt uh wasn't made public till july thirtieth the alki was immediately you know, this is july 29th, actually so they got ahead of it uh pope bars birth control by any artificial means takes front of opposition uh yada 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 and dissent is voiced uh you can see where this is going um there were lots of editorials uh, by lots of people clergy laymen um Uh, This one in the tablet, I can't remember the guy's name, Uh, it says here, um, this is, uh, yeah, they're, I'll get to the lay editorials in a second. They were very, very, there's a lot of, a lot of anger, to say the least, uh, toward Paul VI. This is a protest uh, on behalf of Charles Curran at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Why am I putting this here when it's 1967? Charles Curran was already uh, um, uh, one of the people who was, was pushing for the change in the church teaching before Humanae Vitae was released. He was actually sacked by CUA in 1967, but there were a bunch of protests, which you can see here, of not just laymen, but, of course, there are nuns. You can see priests in the, the background here. Uh, they got him reinstated, uh, and eventually, by the way, well, we'll split a moment, he became one of the major primary dissenters from Humanae Vitae when it was uh, issued um, this next one I kind of like. This is from Germany. I think it was some sort of couples, sort of family life thing in Germany, Catholic family life thing. Um, married couples met to protest, um, protest uh, uh, humana vitae. I think I pronounced this right. sich buigen und Zuigen, which translates submit and procreate. Uh, so people were taking this uh, not very well. I thought this was, you know, um, yeah, the clergy telling them how to live their lives, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, this is weird, but I uh, some levity in a very heavy subject, but um that is a protest by women um outside in The Hague, actually. The Hague is in the Netherlands. Um and um they are protesting on the anniversary of Humana Vitae in 1974 <clears throat> against the of the cyclical and the teaching. And if you um uh, I don't know if you can guess what they're supposed to be dressed
1: up as, they they're they're dressed they're dressed up as sperm you get it people people were angry and the
0: when they protested and stuff okay finally to the what I'm calling the schism of 68 that's actually not my phrase by the way that was a, it was a book published in 2019 by a bunch of uh, historians who I believe are all all opposed to humanity they call it the schism of 68 the uh, conservative Catholic writer George Weigel who's the biographer of John Paul II called it the truce of 68 they're kind of both true but I'll call it the schism of 68 Pope Paul probably couldn't have picked a worse time to issue the encyclical. There was upheaval across the Western world. There were protests across the Western world and university campuses, students seizing buildings and getting into fights with police and everything else and armed confrontations and the Vietnam War was happening. And there was, um, um, you know, um, um, all sorts of shenanigans. The Soviets invade Czechoslovakia in 1968. Um, Martin Luther King's assassinated. Robert Kennedy's assassinated in 1968. Oh, hell's breaking loose. So, in the midst of this global social upheaval, he throws what he throws. He doesn't throw a grenade. He throws he throws a, a fast burning um, log of wood on a fire, and it goes crazy. And the response of much of the clergy, much of the church in Western Europe, was one of defiance. Uh, multiple bishops' conferences uh, in Germany, Belgium, Austria, Canada, Switzerland, um, among others, issued statements either opposed uh, to Mane Vitae or insinuating that it was
1: not binding on people. Uh, cardinal Suenens, one, one I mentioned before, Belgian cardinal. Cardinal. Um, asked
0: out loud in the aftermath of you know my quote whether moral theology took sufficient account of scientific progress which can help determine what is according to nature we just knew nature better right i beg you my brothers let us avoid another galileo affair one is enough for the church unquote so he saw this as being on the level of galileo which if you've listened to my lecture on Galileo, you know he has no idea what he's talking about. Totally wrong. Um, He was also supported by many, many prominent theologians, people like Karl Rahner, Hans Kuhn, Joseph Fuchs, I mentioned before, Bernard Haring. Um, And if you notice, by the way, the trend of those names, they're all German. Germany is in some ways the epicenter of intellectual opposition to um, not just humana vitae, but a lot of traditional church teaching to this day. In the United States, um, a group of theologians at Catholic University issued a document denouncing Humanae Vitae when they refused to recant. Uh, Cardinal O'Boyle of Washington removed their faculties, at least from some of them. Um, Richard Curran, a person I've already mentioned before, uh, as soon as, I think the day after Humanae Vitae was actually issued, held a PREF conference on the steps of, of uh, Catholic University. And... Um, Told the public that couples could follow their conscience in the matter, and that the teaching of Humanity Day was not binding. And this, by the way, will become the de facto rationale for a lot of people, a lot of priests and clergy and theologians after Humanity Day, that basically it's uh, it's not binding and people can just do according to their consciences, whatever well they, they like. Uh, in September of 1968, uh, during a sermon in which Cardinal Boyle denounced um, dissenters, to, against humana vitae. uh 200 catholics walked out um condemning which uh, in protest uh the remaining uh parishioners gave him a standing ovation by the way in november of that year four thousand people protested outside the uh, meeting of the us usccb in washington dc in support of um dissidents uh, against uh, humana vitae and um interestingly enough um um uh, well, on the one, time for that later, but um, it was this type of uh, open opposition to humanity vitae which basically led Paul VI to take a defensive stance uh, with regard to the centers. When Cardinal La removed those faculties from the, from those priests who had written the uh, written the document, um, the Vatican uh, the the priest appealed to the Vatican, and the Vatican told him to reinstate their faculties. Uh, apparently, out of a fear that schism would would uh, occur if a uh if dissent were strictly punished uh and that basically had marked a huge turning point um since that since that year basically uh the vatican has uh never really um uh except in only in rare cases basically punishes theological dissent anymore mainly for for that reason they're terrified of what will happen in terms of schism now, in terms of uh, lay uh, Catholic uh, responses, um, the reaction among articulate Catholics was, uh, at least in the press, was one of the outrage uh, and a clear sense of betrayal. Um, I have to stress this. I have I you know, tell from the tone. I have I don't have much sympathy with the dissenting clergy at all. Uh, I have more sympathy with the the uh, lay people who reacted badly to this uh, and the ones even today who reject the teaching. I a lot of these people in the 1960s, when you read it, it didn't we get a chance to read too many accounts of lay people's reaction to, uh, you want know to detail, but the ones that do, they are people who sound like they, people who did. They tried to follow church teachings. They had big families. Um I think they felt they'd been sold a bill of goods. They thought, they thought, again, because you had all of these clergy and theologians saying, yes, the church is going to change its teachings. They, they thought they had been promised relief from their distress, Uh, and they come out, it's not just uh, implied, some them come out outright and say they've been betrayed. It's amazing how many people from that era used the phrase, um, basically accused Paul VI of harming people by issuing the encyclical. It's that personal to them. Um, In uh, France, for example, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, 3,000 women sent letters to a a Catholic women's journal um, between 1968 and 1969. Uh, A lot of them expressing disappointment with this. Um, uh, Some of them uh, argued that they found it impossible to say no to their husbands when they wanted to make love, and they were afraid that that, uh, denying them would push them into adultery, stuff like this. Um, And so you get these, sometimes these heartfelt uh, responses to this stuff. Uh, However, by the way, in that batch of letters, you also had some older women defending the teaching, so it wasn't all against this. And I should mention, by the way, despite a lot of real anger, um, there was some astroturfing going on. Um, after Humanae Vitae was issued, um, just to give one example, Hugh Moore, who was a businessman and population control activist, he f- founded the Dixie Cup Corporation. Uh, He was also the, one of the founders of, uh, of International Planned Parenthood, and he took out full-page ads in the New York Times on the newspapers um, denouncing Humanae Vitae. Uh, he publicized and organized petitions from dissenting priests and circulated anti, uh, anti-Humana Vitae material and sent it to bishops, translating it into Spanish and French. So not all of this, by the way, was spontaneous, though a lot of it was. And finally, we come to um, the dissent of theologians. Uh, in the following years after Humana many theologians unhappy with it would promote theories designed to get around the van. Um, probably the most important of these persons is Bernard Haring. He was on the Papal Commission in the 1960s, leading up to Humanae Vitae. He um, he was one of the people who pushed something called the fundamental option. What is the fundamental option? This is the idea that I uh, put this. I'm dumbing this down, but it's the idea that not every single act uh, has to be immoral. In other words, I'm, I'm dumbing this down. Basically, means as long as your heart is fundamentally oriented toward God, you can sort of like certain individual acts don't have to be considered sins basically. I'm dumbing this down and it's kind of confusing anyway, but it was a way of basically saying that not every act has to be intrinsically um, immoral with regards to contraception and other things as well. Um, uh, I should point out by the way, humanity had his defenders. Uh, I mentioned Germain Grise, he was one of his prominent defenders. Dietrich von Hildebrand a German uh, theologian. Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, Carol Boyte, where they were all defended, published defenses of, of Humanae Vitae over the years. Um, but on the whole, for the next couple of decades, from 1970 to the early 1990s, Humanae Vitae was a dead letter in most seminaries. Uh, a lot of places wouldn't even teach it. A lot of places would just sort of out of hand um, dismiss it, say it wasn't binding, and say it's going to change. So um this is uh uh, what the legacy of dissent and um opposition within the seminaries. I'm gonna leave you, I'm gonna stop with one last um one last uh chart to end this. This is from a study um by um by Father Andrew Greeley. You don't know who Andrew Greeley was? It's a priest, lay passed away now. Father Andrew Greeley was a priest, but also a sociologist. And uh, he was someone, by the way, who wanted the church to teaching. But this is a study from 1963, which if you can read the title on the side here, says the S- sexual Revolution among the Catholic clergy. And it was based on a survey of over 5,000 clergy um, in 1972, I think. And um, it measures attitudes toward contraception before and after Humanae Vitae. And I've highlighted two areas here. This is something you can see the the breakdown. And we'll go into this. But... Uh, lists attitudes, and attitude A is all contraception is morally wrong because it's forbidden by natural law and by the church. Before humanity Vitae, 75% of bishops agreed. After, 70% of bishops agreed. So not much change. Take a look at diocesan priests before and after. Before, 40% and only 40% believed that it was, this was true or agreed with this. After, only 29% agreed with this. You go to religious orders, uh, superiors, before humanity, 46% of people believe this, the uh, attitude A, after only 34%. Go to priests, it goes from 39 to 29. And you take a look down at the bottom, um, attitude E judgment concerning the morality of artificial contraception should be left to the responsibly formed consciences of the individuals involved. Again, bishops before, only 7% believe that after only 11% believed that. So the hierarchy in 1973 was still fairly conservative. What was opposed was of course the clergy. Before humana vitae, only 22% of of, uh, diocesan clergy would agree with that, after it's 32%. Um, Go to religious superior, same thing, before 14% up to 28, 20 to 30, you get the idea. the cohort of priests about 10 years before, who or ordained 10 years before and 10 years after Humanae Vitae, led a shift in the church. These people, these clergy are now, of course, bishops and cardinals and running dioceses, and, and they're the ones whose attitudes shape the church today. So Humana Vitae was uh, an epic earthquake, earthquake within the church. And, um,
1: and, and so, yeah. And so, um, um, uh, that is the end of the lecture uh um